A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on Truth and Movies, Martin Scorsese returns with over three hours of The Irishman, but is it good, fellas? Making a point dressing like that? Is that your dress for me? Then we pick up the pace with John DeLorean in true crime drama driven. You got the whole thing laid out in front of you in a million pieces. And in Film Club, forget about Taxi Driver, what about Ambulance Driver? Nick Cage stars in Bringing Out the Dead. How long have you been doing this? Five years. Wow, you must have seen some things, huh? All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, sitting in the host chair across this week from Sophie Monks-Kaufman. Hi. Sophie, welcome back. Thank you. Always a pleasure to have you here. Always a pleasure to be here, Michael. And David Jenkins, hey. head honcho of Little White Lies. Hey, hey, hey. David, what's new? We've just done our new issue, which we're going to be announcing on probably on the next week's podcast, uh-huh. which we can tell you all about in a bit more detail. I'd like to keep that a bit secret for a little bit longer. And also, we're hosting a screen, a film screening oh, yeah? in a cinema mm-hmm. this, this Friday, Friday the 8th, 6.30. David hasn't had much sleep. <laughs> Picture House Central. And it's a 10th anniversary screening of The Coen Brothers' A Serious Man. A great film, I'd say. It is a great film. Truly and- astonishing Michael Stuhlberg. And in town is the author and critic Adam Naiman, who wrote a big book on the Coen brothers, who's going to be live in person talking after the film and answering audience questions. So come on down. Fantastic. So that's Friday the 8th, Picture House Centre in London. 6.30. Come through, (laughs) as the kids say. We have a letter from a listener that we'd like to read out first before we get on with this week's new releases. This comes from Anthony in Alicante. He says, hello, this is just to say how much I enjoy the podcast and look forward to it every week. Happily, I tend to agree with most of your reviews, which is nice, but seriously, what I most value about the show is the warmth and enthusiasm of David, Michael, Hannah and the other contributors. The heads up you give me for films I would otherwise never hear of are invaluable. Possum, terrifying, The Wild Pear Tree and Transit being fairly recent examples of films I've loved, thanks to you. Best wishes to all the team. Anthony, yeah, three great films there that Anthony's picked out. Indeed. That's such a sweet-natured letter. It's, it's, I feel a bit kind of discombobulated after that. It's usually, like, invective and... <laughs> <laughs> well, David, there's plenty of time in this episode for you to say something controversial. Okay. And people can let us know at the usual channels what they think of it. That's... At Truth and Movies on Twitter, Truth and Movies at TCOLondon.com via email or at the comments section at LWLies.com slash podcast. Now, let's get to this week's new releases. We've got a big one to begin with. It's Martin Scorsese's The Irishman.
Robert De Niro, Al Pacino and Joe Pesci star in Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, an epic saga of organised crime told through the eyes of World War II veteran Frank Sheeran, a hustler and hitman who works alongside some of the most notorious figures of the 20th century. Spanning decades, the film chronicles one of the great unsolved mysteries of American history too, the disappearance of Union boss Jimmy Hoffa, and offers a journey through the hidden corridors of organised crime. Can you believe this weather, Frank? Huh? It's 85 degrees outside. Perfect. Hey, Tony Jake. Jimmy. People freezing to death in New York. And look at us. Hey. Why we don't live here all year round is what I want to know. Beautiful. It's summer. What? It's summer. People aren't freezing to death in New York. It's summer. In my mind, it's always eight degrees in New York. I'm making a point. Making a point? Making a point dressing like that? Is that how you dress for a meeting? And this is how you dress in Florida? In a suit? For a meeting? Anywhere. Florida, Timbuktu, I dress in a suit. For a meeting. And you're late. What? You're late. So, Sophie, this is a big movie. And there's a lot riding on this, so much discourse around it already, mm. not even about the film itself, Martin Scorsese, talking about what is and isn't cinema. Is this cinema? Absolutely, yes. Um, and I'd just like to flag like my perspective going into this film, because it, it's quite an unusual perspective. Um, there's a film coming out later this month called Shooting the Mafia by Kim Longinotto, who's one of our greatest documentarians. She generally makes observational documentaries set around the world. Usually it's like female fighting oppression. Mm-hmm. But this new documentary is a portrait of a woman not dissimilar to her in that she's a photojournalist called Letizia Baglia who grew up in Palermo and became a photojournalist during the most brutal era of the Costa Nostra Mafia. And I interviewed Kim Longinotto during LFF and she was really railing against the glorification of the mafia uh-huh. in movies like The Godfather. In fact, she showed me this, this amazing picture of Letizia, who's the star of Shooting the Mafia, with her holding up a finger to The Godfather poster. Mm. So I came to this mammoth movie, this three and a half hour movie, like ready to take Kim's side. Not that she's overtly said this about the Irishman, but like very sceptical, waiting to see the glorification of the mafia or like on red alert for it but by the end oh my god it's just it's the sweep of the thing it's the existential sweep of it it's astonishingly melancholic after a certain point and just to roll back a bit and talk about the actual setup of it and the way it unfolds you know it's this whole it's this man's whole life frank sheeran you see him when he's just like um a truck driver shifting meat and you see him rising up to become a hitman And then you see him right through to the point where he's basically outlived everyone. And you have a real sense of this man who's actually just wasted his whole life. He's actually not very impressive at the end of the day. And there's this wonderful character, his daughter, Peggy, whose adult version is played by Anna Paquin. She doesn't have many lines, but her eyes just bear witness and silently judge throughout. And... It truly is cinema because there's a certain point in the three and a half hours where I was like, you know what, this could last seven hours and I'd be fine because it's so intricate in its depiction of these people's lives. And it's Al Pacino, like the best I've seen him for a really long time. 
very big, very passionate, and a man who's quite unusual in that he refuses to bend to like the mafia law. It's just a treat. All of cinema is there. Wow. And part of that execution, much has been made of this de-aging CGI technology that's been wrangled by Martin Scorsese. You're placed in the hands of Martin Scorsese. Usually it's the preserve of big blockbusters so that Pacino, Pesci, De Niro can play these characters across decades of their lives, even though they're all old blokes now. They're re-round all the way back to in their 20s, 40s, 50s. David, does that work? Mm, I don't feel like I can really give that a yes-no answer, really, because tastes may vary on it, to be honest. There are moments where you have De Niro de-aged as a very young soldier during World War II in Italy. It's a callback to Goodfellas, you know, the the sequence where uh, Ray Liotta goes and duffs up the guy on the drive and, you know, whacks him over the head with the butt of the gun. So Frank Sheeran comes home and discovers that the local grocer has been manhandling his daughter and you know he sees this red mist and just accompanies the daughter down there gets her to point out the guy and then just beats the hell out of him in public and you know drags him out into onto the the pavement and starts stomping on his head and it's a really like odd sequence because what you've got is a young De Niro a De Niro who's obviously meant to be in his maybe 30s or 40s um who looks young because the face has been de-aged and the, and the makeup effects make him look younger. And he's doing this very physical thing of stamping on a guy's head and he's waving his arms about. And it's it kind of brings out this kind of moment of nostalgia because you, you think back to all the other De Niro performances where he's had to be violent, even back to like when he's playing like Johnny Boy in Mean Streets. You kind of think, wow, this is like not only him doing an act, it's him sort of reliving these people he's played in the past. As you say, it's got that kind of air of melancholy because you can see that, you know, he's not the sort of life young buck that he once was. And uh, the way his body moves makes it look like there's much heavier exertion in doing this kind of thing. So you're seeing like an old guy and a, and a young body and, you know, a guy performing like he's trying to be young, but then he's not. And you're basically seeing De Niro through all of time in a single body, in a single moment. And it's just like, it's crazy, to be honest. It's, yeah. it's something that I can't really get my head around. Because so. his character's a bit of a blank slate compared to the other characters. He's there, he does what he's told. And De Niro has his trademark, like, downward-turned scowl face. And it is slightly distracting the way he looks. He a little bit looks he like He is he's... a man without any agency. I mean, he yeah. doesn't, you know, he doesn't make any decisions in the film. He is like the pinball who is just kind of flung around to by other people and is, is doing the bidding of, of all these various people and that's kind of the main dramatic tension in the film is where his allegiance lies and in the end even they have to sort of make that decision for him really so but he does a bit look like he's wearing a mask of his own face he isn't quite convincing but then somehow that adds something to this character who's otherwise a pinball yeah, that's an amazing way of putting it. Like, you know, he, he, way of putting yeah, it. yeah, like that kind of definitely, it's like the de-aging technology is kind of emphasising that blankness and creating that division of like actually seeing into this guy's soul. I don't think this film hit me as hard as I was maybe anticipating after kind of reading some of the early reviews of it. I have wrestled with it actually in my mind for a long time about my feelings about this sort of big elegiac final act where the story ends and there is this kind of prolonged coda about 
you know, you know, in movies where you have the intertitle at the end, and he went on to do X, Y. It's like Scorsese said, right, we're not going to do that. We're actually going to show that, but then we're actually going to take it down to like like a fine detail. I, I guess I found it hard to like, you know, the guy is a serial killer. He's you know he he's a sort of blank stone faced murderer, and then. I'm just wondering, do, do you think the film is asking you to feel sorry for him um, or pity I, him? I or? don't, again, and again, I like, this is something I was on a hair trigger waiting to judge because to keep banging the drum for shooting the mafia, like one point that Kim long makes is that, yeah, the mafia ruined people's lives and they kill children and there's this whole side of what they do that we don't really see. And I don't know, I just feel like throughout the whole film, Frank is shown to be so spineless, to be such a gun for hire, that at the end, Martin Scorsese trains, trades in ambiguity. He's never going to spoon-feed you, like, right or wrong. You know, like, that Chris Morris is a good or is it bad. You know, it's purely ambiguous. But this is not an admirable or an impressive character study. He's shown to be pathetic. So I think at the end, it's more, like, haunting and harrowing. And especially... I don't usually stay throughout the credits, but there's this amazing deployment of the song in the still of the night. And the way that it's used at the end, I just had this image of this old guy alone, awake, in the still of the night. And he's got nothing to show for himself. So no, I I really, I feel that it's not asking for us to feel sorry for him, it's asking us to pity him, which is, is a little bit different in that, it's not empathy driven mm-hmm. like everything that we've seen in the film has led us not to admire him and so by the end it's like look what's become of him it is it is fascinating there is a sort of moralistic element to it as well in that sense of like it's a film that's basically saying in a very kind of eloquent and quite poetic way that like murder doesn't pay i think the arc of so many crime films and crime films which Scorsese himself has made where you have the the good times rolling and it's down, down, down and then down some more um, until you're, you know, you're a schnook eating noodles and ketchup. And then, but with this movie, I mean, he's really saying that like you could get away with it, you know, you could find yourself in a position where you're maybe not in prison, but it's really not worth it. I mean, to the point where it's saying... Don't kill kids. Don't kill but then it kind of even takes even further to sort of essentially say that nothing we do is really of any lasting value. <laughs> Does it say that, though? Well, Does it, it, I guess it could. I don't know. Can we say something as well? Because it's called The Irishman, but the book it's based on is called I Heard You Paint Houses, and I believe that's Scorsese's preferred title, right. which is a reference to if you shoot someone at point-blank range, mm-hmm. their blood goes on the wall of the house. Okay, it's, well, It comes up as the title of the film, mm-hmm. but or like the words flash up on the screen where you think a title would be, and it's like, you know, I think, is it is this the title? Is this some sort of Godardian slogan <laughs> that he's just flashing up? The Irishman, I, I mean, I didn't see it appear on the screen. No, me so. neither. They just yeah. occasionally refer to him that way and they're like, oh, you're doing well in, right. in New Jersey Mafia for an Irishman. There's a weight of history not only within the film but also on the film itself. It's Scorsese returning to a genre he worked to a great, very high standard in 20 years ago, uh, Casino and Goodfellas, etc. Also returning to a collaboration that's marked his career with De Niro. So how does this fit within the Scorsese-De Niro dynamic, but also the Scorsese filmography, Sophie, would you say? Yeah, it almost feels like this epic epilogue Mm -hmm. where all the elements are conducted together in a very thoughtful, reflective way. It feels very, very reflective. And just as we touched on, 
when we're talking about Robert De Niro's performance, like Jenks was saying, it's, you know, some kind of weird mega mix. Mm. It almost feels like a tying up of loose ends. Whereas, like, certain films like Goodfellas, which is I love, it's very in the moment, it's very visceral, it's very immediate. If there's food for thought, it's not inbuilt necessarily, although... I think Scorsese's dialogue is always very interesting and kind of spins spin situations around in their head. But it's not necessarily a, like a real poser. But in Built into the Irishman, in this final part, which is the, the intertitle segment that Jenks refers to, you're invited to reflect. And it's not metatextual. Like, it's not inviting you to think back on all the past films and the past collaborations. It just feels like here's a filmmaker who's got to a point in his life where he's very, very thoughtful and it's just a joy to watch a film like that where you you know nothing feels really dashed off at all it all feels like quite refined in a way I think yeah I I totally agree and I think another thing as well is like there has been all this talk about auteurism and like the director as the artist and I think a lot of people talk about that in terms of like oh well how can we connect the films together what are the themes and the motifs and the visuals and the people that connect the films together and I, th- I think that one thing that people maybe don't talk about as much is the idea of like people y- y- making these films for a reason, for a sort of deep, personal, profound reason. I think you see a film like The Irishman and it absolutely it almost reads like, you know, biography. You know, it's this guy who, who is, is coming to the end of his career and he's made all these, these movies and you kind of think, well, who does he see himself as, you know? He must have some connection to Frank Sheeran to want to make this film. And well, it sounds like we could talk about this for three and a half hours or more. Yes. <laughs> Sophie, what scores would you give The Irishman in well, anticipation, mm. enjoyment in retrospect? Yeah, so I, I somehow wasn't anticipating it that much. Um, so, yeah, it was antip- an, an, anticipation. Sean Connery in the house. Anticipation three. Uh, enjoyment for, in retrospect, five. Right, David. I'd probably say Anticipation 5, because I, I thought I think Silence is one of his, if not his best film, and, you know, excited to see what, what he does next. I'd probably say 4 and 4, because I, I want to see it again. Mm-hmm. It didn't kind of connect with me on that primal level that I was hoping it would on first go, and I think maybe another sweep would do it. I think we've spent a lot of time talking about how sad and melancholic and reflective and pensive and and existential it is. One thing to mention, I think you you, you already mentioned this, but to emphasise that it's very funny as yeah. well. It's a really funny film. That that makes it a very very easy and pleasurable watch. And hat off on that note to Stephen Graham, who we saw in Shane Meadows' The Virtues, who was incredible in that, and he plays uh, the little guy Tony Pro. And he's brilliant. He wears shorts to a meeting ill-advisedly and never lives it down. Ah, He's always a a welcome presence on screen, I think. Mm. Very briefly, though, of course, this film is out in cinemas this weekend, but is on Netflix in only a couple of weeks. Should we see it on the big screen or at home? Yes. Yeah, big screen, so, resoundingly yeah, on big screen. Yeah, okay. yeah, especially a film of this length. Like you know, if you're if you're watching it at home, you're like, get up, noodle around. No, you should strap in for the whole three and a half hours. So if you're fortunate enough to be near where it's screening on this sort of expanded limited release, it's not a full release. It's sort of half I, and half. I think that so much of the film is in the last forty-five minutes, and if you don't have all the context details there in your mind ready, it's just not going to have that impact. Mm-hmm. So. It's it's think think about it that way. It's a film. It's it's meant to be that long, and it's structured in a way that is like 
don't don't pause don't stop yeah. don't don't return to it the next day the scope just widens and widens because it, it starts like just kind of like a talky gangster movie and you're like oh, okay this is fine that, at least that's what I thought and then it, the scope just builds and builds wow okay well that's The Irishman in some cinemas this weekend up next we have another new release we have Driven Set in the opulence of early 1980s California, Driven follows the meteoric rise of John DeLorean, played by Lee Pace, and his iconic DeLorean motor company, as well as his friendship with charming ex-con turned FBI informant Jim Hoffman, played by Jason Sudeikis, who's there to provide counsel and perhaps suggest a quick money-making scheme when DeLorean's fortunes falter. I don't have the cash to make payroll. Renault's going to stop supplying our engines. Of the 8,000 cars we've built, I've sold maybe 3,000. I owe Bank of America $20 million, and they own every car on this side of the Atlantic. All of their loans are being called in. Debt facilities canceled. Well, I mean, you know, things could get worse. (laughs) (laughs) It's over, buddy. That's not, no, uh-uh, no, 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 I, I, I don't believe that, not for a second. Look, you're, you're going to think of something, you'll work it out, you always do, you know? You know what, this is a lot like that, uh, the car that your dad bought you. And you think, <laughs> no, it is, you, you, you got the whole thing laid out in front of you in a million pieces, and, and what did you do in that situation? You put that thing back together, you know, better than new. A clip from Driven there, Jason Sudeikis talking to Lee Pace. It was an audio clip, so you don't see Lee Pace's amazing hair job in this film. It's amazing to have this side by side with uh, such cutting edge de aging tech, David, isn't it? <laughs> to then see uh, Lee Pace with, is it just a dye job or a full on wig? I couldn't tell, to be honest. I, I'm not entirely sure what Lee Pace looks like normally, so it was, it was hard to tell what the... That's true, right? He's in the, he's, he's in the Hobbit films, so yeah. he's, he's all done up as, he's, a, as he's, a... He's often made up, isn't he? And then in the Guardians of the Galaxy films, he's got lots of makeup on. What does Lee Pace well, actually look like? Well, as someone who's just seen the part he's just beginning, he is in which he is not dressed up as anything apart from the hot babe that he is. He's a hot babe. He's a hot babe. Okay. But David, tell us about John DeLorean on screen. This is the only one of two films that have come out this year about I, him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were just saying before, like it's, it's kind of fascinating to, to be talking about this film this week because I think the John DeLorean story, it has that kind of all-American epic that is is so similar to like Jimmy Hoffa and like these kind of iconic figures who just, who's kind of, Rise and Fall was just, you know, meteoric on both sides. So, yeah, there was a film earlier that was out earlier this year. It was a document. It was a kind of like weirdy, arty documentary and it called Framing Don- John DeLorean. And the the idea of the of that film was about like Hollywood's many, many f- failed attempts to try and make a film about his life and, and his escapades. And you, you have Alec Baldwin and you see shots of him having prosthetics put on and him playing these key scenes in DeLorean's life and the film sort of then just segues into being a very straight documentary about all the crazy stuff that he he went through and you get these little kind of interludes but I mean what Driven does it takes one fragment of it of what is a, a, a giant epic so DeLorean was he worked for General Motors and he was the kind of boy wonder there and he didn't like the fact that he wasn't allowed to experiment and make his own things and use their resource to actually come up with new cars and do do something that was a bit kind of 
looking to the future. And so he, he quit and parlayed all his earnings into the DeLorean Motor Company and his dreams of making a stainless steel sporty car with these upward raising doors that look like angel wings. And um, as we all know, I mean, it gained gained massive credo through being a sort of central character in the uh, Back to the Future franchise. But then John DeLorean himself wasn't able to get any capital to start the company. So he ended up producing all the cars in Ireland and that had its own problems because then Margaret Thatcher pulled out the the funding that was promised so then he was left in a place where he needed to get some funding quickly and that led to a drug deal and blah 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 and um, Jason Sudeikis's character is the he's a courier he's a bit of a wide boy you know he's got this kind of very slightly annoying perma grin on his face <laughs> throughout the film and he's caught couriering some drugs by this by this drug dealer colleague of him and he just he basically just, just to keep himself and his family out of prison he decides to become an informer for the FBI and the FBI initially want to to sort of ensnare this drug dealer but then they really you know they realize he's he's living next door to John DeLorean and think well I'm, have I got this right that, that, that they kind of their sort of interest shifts over to DeLorean when they hear that he could you know this could be a bigger fish basically it's it's unclear, isn't it? Because Jason Sudeikis' character is also trying to find a way to cut a deal with the FBI to be to make some money, but also be free of their mm-hmm. interference. And that is all the matter of the back half of the film is what the intentions and motivations were be, behind this drug deal and who mm-hmm. suggested it. It's almost a bit like The Day Shall Come, the Chris Morris film, in a way. Like, is it a sting operation? Is it all cooked up in the offices of the FBI, or is there actually something there? And uh, yeah, and I think that the film in the end is way too much like framing these guys as like they're bad, but we like them. You know, they're, they're done like bad cool things. Anti-heroes. Exactly, mm-hmm. um, and we got we keep we're keeping on side here. And there's there's a bad drug dealer over here, so so you can you can kind of project any kind of negative feelings you have on that guy, and you've got the you know which side your bread's buttered, mm-hmm. and not in a good way. But then there just isn't the sense of a real passionate vision behind this film either on the page or in the director's chair it it comes across to me like there was a run of films a few years ago which were Scorsese pastiches like American Hustle and American Made the Tom Cruise drug deal movie very similar to those films but almost with half the energy and half the it was like a copy of a copy and it just just didn't really catch fire for me so if you, what did you make of well, it I would say it has engine trouble. Ooh, right, okay. Honk. Also, oh, let me count the ways in which it's incoherent. First of all, everyone is acting in a different film. Jason Sudeikis and Judy Greer, who plays his wife, are acting in a light comedy. Mm-hmm. Lee Pace, who plays John DeLurian, is acting in like a prestige biopic. Most shots of him, he's like smouldering into the distance, like reenacting the thinking emoji. I actually thought Lee Pace was really funny in the film, like in a kind in, in that sort of serious, like he reminded me of someone, but I can't I can't remember who. I, I don't want this to sound like too much of a diss, but it's definitely a diss. This comes across to me like a Golden Globe nominated performance for Lee Pace. <laughs> it's not really good enough or in a good enough film to be in, in Oscar mm-hmm. contention, but he's clearly trying something. And it'll be Best Supporting Actor, Musical or Comedy nominee, Lee Pace. But it's, I don't feel it's even good enough to... It's just also, I think the problem is that it's also terribly written. Mm-hmm. It feels like it was written by a robot. Like There are so many scenes of people just 
on the phone yelling I'll be there in a minute and then slamming the phone down like it's the most unimaginative dry like thriller auto program dialogue all of it all of it there's not a trace of life in any of the words which for me made watching it very very difficult mm-hmm. and yeah I've got a list of all the things I hated <laughs> <laughs> you're scrolling yeah <laughs> so I put tonally very confused you know I, I really felt like it just didn't know what it wanted to be at all like it wasn't pacey enough to be a thriller it wasn't funny enough to be a comedy it wasn't interested enough in John DeLorean to be a biopic because it's zeroing in on this hapless stooge character and like I wasn't even a huge fan of The Day She'll Come but if like you're after an absurd true story about the FBI that is streets or leagues above Mm -hmm. this one and the music is constantly there. It's like, do, 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 do. It's just like arduous to get through because there's just nothing there mm-hmm. to chew on. Like Corey Stoll, who plays the FBI agent, he's the only one who like manages with great exertion to chew some life into the dialogue. But otherwise, it just, oh, it's just this broken down thing. Wow. <laughs> Should we put some scores on this, David? <laughs> yeah, I kind of found it sort of watchable. So I'm probably going to say two, three, two. It, you know, it's the lowest three imaginable. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, yeah, instantly forgettable. So, two, three, two from David. Sophie, what scores would you give this? Uh, two, two, two. Yep, two, two, two from me as well. Uh, not really worth worth the effort to watch. But that's Driven and The Irishman. I think you can tell which one the desk prefers this <laughs> week. Um, up next, we have Film Club. Back to Martin Scorsese for 1999's Bringing Out the Dead. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
Released in 1999, this off-kilter drama reunited Martin Scorsese with screenwriter Paul Schrader. Their previous collaborations included Taxi Driver, Raging Bull and The Last Temptation of Christ. But this film, A Wild Ride Through the Graveyard Shift with Nicolas Cage's Paramedic, didn't quite connect with critics or audiences. However, the film has garnered something of reputation over the years since. Before we chat about it, let's listen to the trailer. Thursday started out with a bang. Heat, humidity, moonlight, all the elements in place for a long weekend. I was good at my job. There were periods when my hands moved with the speed and skill beyond me. How long have you been doing this? Five years. Wow, you must have seen some things, huh? But in the last year, I'd started to lose that control. I've been seeing the ghosts. You ever notice people see things always crazy? Mm-hmm. I just needed a few slow nights, followed by a couple of days off. A clip from Bringing Out the Dead there, something of a hidden gem in the Scorsese filmography. Here's some listener feedback. Got Rob Savage here saying, my favourite Scorsese film. Thanks, Give Dean saying, his best movie. James Clark saying, one of the best. Marco Paolini saying, Imho, in my humble opinion, his last great movie. Well, he's not seen The Irishman yet, maybe. So, Sophie, do you agree about Bringing Out the Dead? This is, weirdly, the only film by Scorsese in the 90s that didn't get an Oscar nomination, Mm. but it's now one that people seem to talk about more often than others. What's your take on Bringing Out the Dead? It's a very difficult film. It's a very, very nightmarish film. It's set in New York, and you can see how it's twinned with Taxi Driver and that you've got this man on the edge driving around the streets at night. But it... Even more so than Taxi Driver, it feels like it's set in hell mm-hmm. or purgatory. This is New York, but it's a New York where it's the worst of what people can suffer. And Nicolas Cage drives around and he's he wants to save someone and he's haunted by this 18-year-old, I think she's 18-year-old, this girl he failed to to save who died on the sidewalk, and he sees her face everywhere. And he's absolutely a man on the edge, and he bears witness to all these nightmarish scenes. Like, some of his co-drivers are... Well, the one played by Tom Sizemore is a sociopath who will take any opportunity to beat up this poor crazy guy called Noel. It's a difficult watch because there's just so much suffering and there's not much of a like a narrative arc or progression. If there is one, it's so basically Nicolas Cage, when he responds to a call about a man who's collapsed and takes the guy to hospital, he ends up befriending the man's daughter, played by Patricia Arquette, who has her own problems. And the way their relationship unfolds is perhaps an arc, but really the whole thing is more episodic, more anecdotal, and it's really an onslaught. It is a really difficult watch. It's brutal. When you say onslaught, onslaught in every sense of the word, stylistically, this really is Scorsese almost in the way that he would with Wolf of Wall Street 10 or so years later, saying, see, I've got the energy that I used to have yeah. in the 70s. And this ha- this is a real off-kilter film, all the way they, they overcrank the action. Um, the soundtrack is very strange, yeah. very 90s soundtrack. What's the Frequency, Kenneth, by R.E.M.? Yes. A song I would never have expected to hear in a Scorsese movie. And casting Nicolas Cage at the heart of it, where... It's probably at just the right point in his career where Nicolas Cage losing his shit hasn't quite become a meme by that point. Mm-hmm. It's before The Wicker Man, before Ghost Rider. But 
as you see him and his face and become mm. more drawn and strung out and bleary-eyed through the film, you, you're waiting for that to happen. It's a strange film, an exhilarating film at times, a confounding film at others. David, did you watch this on release? This- I did see it quite early on, mm-hmm. uh, not in the cinema. I was uh, too young. Uh-huh. If you can even imagine that, um, and then, uh, but I did see it on on like rented video, and it left very little impact on me. And uh, I, I wasn't as familiar with Scorsese overall when I saw it, so it was actually one of the, his kind of non canonical films that mm-hmm. I'd, I'd seen probably. But yeah, it was it's it's a really odd film, and it was clearly made his way. It's as probably as much Paul Schrader's film as it is yeah. Scorsese's. I mean, it's got all these themes of like PTSD. There's, there, there is a lot of kind of Catholic imagery and the, the final shot is quote unquote Mary swaddling Frank in, in a bed and, and, and you get this kind of, you know, almost this religious icon as the, as, as the final shot. It's a ghost story and you know, it's, sort of, it's looking at New York as, as a kind of a city of ghosts and um, Frank trying to sort of come to terms with what he's doing and yeah it's a, it's just it's a strange film I wouldn't say it's an enjoyable film and it actually maybe gets a little wearying after an hour mm-hmm. I don't want to invoke the, the shadow of one of the most controversial films we talked about on the podcast today Joker but there's something about th- this film in there everyone looked back to Mean Streets, Taxi Driver and After Hours for the Scorsese references that Todd Phillips was making but there's something here of the city is hellscape and the lost souls that populate it or the the um, the people driven to the edge of insanity by it. I would say the difference is that this there's, this film isn't political in mm-hmm. the way that Joker tries to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not showing the sort of degradation and poverty as a way, as a kind of expressionist touch. It's clearly fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Guernica. Exactly. It is. It, ha- it ha- Picasso's game. Yeah, and, and yeah, like Bosch and, and all mm-hmm. the, you know, it's, I think there's one thing that I think differs between Joker and, sorry, I, I'm going to rant on Joker because I hate <laughs> and it. You, and you said it was so nice to get some positive uh, yeah. feedback at the beginning of the show, David. But I think one of the key things that is different, different between Todd Phillips and Scorsese is that Scorsese, he is, he's ambiguous about what the, the point of views of the films. So you, you never know if, you, if you're inside Scorsese's mm-hmm. head or the character's head. You're seeing what he's seeing or the character's seeing. And I think this is the same. You don't know if this is like realist or this is fantasy. You, you know, there's no, there's no real explicit moment where it's like, oh, you understand that he's seeing this thing and it's not real. There is always that kind of, well, is it real? Is, you know, is he just seeing these, the people having a fight on a pavement? You know, is he seeing like people taking drugs in a car? I mean, is all this stuff happening? And 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 that's that. That is what makes Scorsese a great filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like you know, you don't get that in joke. Perhaps not. But what, what's great about Scorsese when he's working with Schrader is they do have that religious aspect to the films. And in this case, it takes a very expressionistic touch, such as with the lighting, which is incredible in this mm-hmm. film. That, that it's on on the one hand so overexposed, almost like every every scene is shot by fluorescent strip light, which just fully immerses you in the world of being sleep deprived and on a caffeine high it's almost high. got that kind of celestial vibe it to it like, well. like heaven heaven is above them but they're down in hell kind of thing and there's a scene where a character passes away and literally you see the light drain from them it, it, that's really remarkable mm. I do 
rewatching this and knowing it's from 1999 and because this year we've had so much focus on the films of 1999 and whether that's one of the last great years of cinema I see this as almost Scorsese's response to so much of the late 90s new American cinema it's his response to Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson a little bit of Spike Lee in there where he said I can do that too I can take some of those influences inspirations from the the modern day but show you how the old guys do it it really fits in particularly some of those scenes with um Patricia Arquette's character it seems like it's ripped out of Fight Club or something existing in the same world as those as much as existing in the same world as Mean Streets or I I actually I actually thought that she's probably one of his one of Scorsese's best female characters Um, right her arc is 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 really fascinating, and she's not just this comfort figure and this you know this this um, angel of mercy, angel of mercy, and this calming female presence. And then, but it's not afraid to like show that she has her own demons and her own past, and 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 that she she has problems as well. And that you know you there, there aren't people that you can just lean on mm-hmm. for to, for solace. And it starts off in what is like a motif where they're like every time he comes back to the hospital. He, he'll meet her outside for a cigarette and they'll have a quick chat and you kind of think, oh, that's how this is going to play out and that's how their relationship's going to expand. But then eventually, you know, other stuff happens and she becomes part of his work almost, I mm-hmm. guess. Well, they're friends. You expect it to blossom into a romance, but it, it blossoms into a friendship. The two desperate lost souls. And can we talk about Nicolas Cage's performance? Because <laughs> it's actually... In as much as he's a man on the edge, it's him in a very tender role. You know, what drives him is the desire to save people. And what drives him nearly over the edge is the fact that he so often can't. And he's all but dying to do good. The the way that he's styled, you know, these ever-increasing bags, like a deathly pallor, it's very poignant. And he never cracks up quite in the same way that his colleagues do. Like they, especially Tom Sizemore, who is... Oh, gives me shivers every time he's on screen. You know, it's like very much they've snapped. He's just trying to hang in there for the sake of possibly doing a little bit to help. And watching a man struggle to just meet out a tiny little bit of good amidst these cascades of awfulness is really moving. Mm-hmm. There's a kernel here, at least from the screenwriter's point of view, of First Reformed, which Schrader would make nearly 20 years later. I'd love to watch those side by side as this it's man true. trying to do good it's in the tr- world. It's, 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 I think the, the thing that connects them is this idea of like a man who's trying to dedicate himself to saving mm-hmm. people from their own implicit destructiveness and how impo- and basically the effect that that has you know the adverse effect that that has has on the characters mm-hmm. it's an absurd folly you know you can't you can't stop the inevitable mm-hmm. and that's what he wants to do and yeah. that's what the character in, in first reform wants to do and, yeah. you know it's impossible yeah a, a curious tidbit which actually only came up this week john goodman's in this film as a relatively small role early on he's replaced he's, he's the driver or like his sidekick for the first shift and then he doesn't really come back later in the film john goodman was on mark maron's podcast this week and they brought they, they mentioned bringing out the dead and he said that's when he was really at the depth of his alcoholism and he said he just what he wasn't he just didn't get the character he was drunk every day on set and 
whereas with the Coen brothers, his collaborations with them, he was his work was easy because the characters are so fully fleshed in the script. Scorsese and Schrader had didn't have as much character detail, and they expected actors to bring something to, to the, the film themselves. And he just said he didn't do it, and he looks back on that film with great regret. And thinking that this comes out what the year after The Big Lebowski, you think that he's a, he's on the up. And it's a shame to see him so overshadowed by other supporting actors. Like Ving Rhames is brilliant mm -hmm. when he turns up for the second act. And then Tom Sizemore. It's probably the end of peak Sizemore, isn't it? That's so great Sizemore in the 80s and 90s. Exploded, really. Yeah. He yeah. was cut down to size yeah. more. <laughs> but do, what, what do we think about this being the great lost Scorsese classic? Would this rank highly for you? Or is it still somewhere mid-table? I think it's more of a Scorsese curiosity. Same. A pleasure for the Scorsese hardcore, maybe. I mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily be, like, dashing to recommend it to, mm. to above, you know, the the, the, big, the biggies. I'd say a lost classic, not even a lost classic, because everyone loves it, but After Hours. Yes, and that's, that's, a, that's a film that kind of rhymes with this one, um, but is just a bit more fully formed. Like, this is a, this is Shaggy Dog Scorsese. Mm -hmm. I th yeah, I, I totally agree. That's that's an, That's an amazing comparison. This is, like, kind of... The more sort of like obviously dark after hours. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, after, after, hour, after hours. After after hours, yeah. yes. So, Sophie, if we were, we're going to recommend After Hours mm. as, a, as a, the next film from Bringing Out the Dead, David, would you recommend an underseen Scorsese for people to check out? Mm. Maybe Silence is the one. That didn't have much of a release. Yeah, I, I mean, si Silence is great. Um, there's, there are so few underseen. I think my favourite is probably. Um, King of Comedy, mm -hmm. um, and you know that's that's probably slightly bubbling under the top top tier. I really like Casino as well. Again, that's that's a fairly big one. Um, Cape Fear is is pretty good. Like fun fun. That's sort one, of, people don't mention Cape Fear very often, do they? They use the meme of Max Cady <laughs> laughing in the cinema. Yeah, it's a well made sort of throwaway thriller. I mm -hmm. think with 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 some interesting stuff in it. Color of Money is fun again wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be like yeah must must watch i do think there is a yeah i think king of comedy for me is is, mm -hmm. is the one really and you mentioned patricia Arquette as one of his great female characters i think sandra bernhard's masha is yes. one of his truly great female characters yeah. oh well king of comedy terrific listeners let us know what you think of scorsese and his work after this bumper scorsese episode at the usual channels at truth and movies on twitter Truth and Movies at tclondon.com via email and at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Next week, Le Mans 66, also known as Ford versus Ferrari uh, in, in international territories, the, the, the face-off that we've all been waiting for. We have Marriage Story, the new Noah Baumbach film. Another face-off. Exactly. And another film with M in, <laughs> prominent M in the title. And for Film Club... Since we're doing Le Mans 66 as the lead review, we're going to go back to the 1970s for the film Le Mans. David, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me this week, talking Scorsese and Driven as well. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Let's forget that film like mm. it ever existed. I'm Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, 
a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.